This afternoon, we come back now to our study of Luke's gospel. This morning, or this afternoon, rather, will be in chapter 16, uh, verses 14 to 17. Most editions of the ESV, you can find that on page 875. Uh, Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we have taken uh, some large sections of the text to study together. We looked at uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the two lost sons, and last week, if you were with us, the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, as a way of preview, uh, this week we're going to slow down and just look at four verses. Uh, Next week, we'll take it even slower, so pray for Pastor Kerr as he prepares a single verse for us next week. Uh, And as he's on vacation as well, do keep uh, the Kerr family in your prayers as well. And then after that, just as a little bit more preview, we'll take a break from our study of Luke to dig into uh, some Advent texts and look forward to celebrating Christmas together. So before we come again uh, to our text, uh, let me bow and we'll open in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, texts and teachings that edify us. Father, as we open your word this morning, may you uh, make us mindful of where our heart is oriented. Help us to focus our heart on you and serve you only. Father, bless our study this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we've been doing, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, as we read from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 17. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the hearing of his word. You may be seated. Now, Many of you know that for several years I was a soccer official. I was a referee. I was the guy wearing those admittedly obnoxiously bright yellow shirts, blowing a whistle, handing out yellow and red cards. And one thing that I consistently noticed as a referee was how uh, players could be affected by the things that they heard, either from the stands or from their coaches. It was so obvious because a a child, especially a young child, uh, would be on the field and they'd hear conflicting advice. The coach would have had a plan for the game or even for that specific player. Maybe he wants them to pass a little bit more instead of trying to take a shot every time he touches the ball. But then from the stands, you'd hear a parent giving conflicting advice, and you can imagine the frustration of a child who's hearing these two different sources of authority. And so often it was, it was easy to see because that kid would get caught just looking down. He wouldn't look at the sideline. He wouldn't look back at the coach. He'd just be looking down, caught in some kind of ineffective confusion. <laughs> So there was one high school game, I remember uh, a player's father was yelling loudly, and it was obviously making the player uncomfortable. This is a high school kid. 
So as a referee, I, the next chance I got, I ran by this player and I said, hey, do you want me to stop this? I can make him be quiet. Uh, and she said, no, he does this every game, I'll handle it. Uh, so the next chance she got, she ran over to the sideline and said, dad, stop it, you're not helping. Um, and so she, she knew who she needed to listen to. She couldn't do both what her father was telling her and what the coach was saying. So please don't hear me say, kids, don't listen to your parents. That is, that is not what I'm saying at all. Children, you ought to obey your parents as is fitting in the Lord. What I'm asking you to do is put yourself into that situation of that player who's hearing these two things. That's a difficult situation to find yourself in. So as we come to our text this afternoon, our, I think our text is asking us, which master will you serve? Will you serve the things of man or will you serve the Lord? And so uh, what I hope that we'll see, what Lord willing we'll see, is what it is to exalt the things of man, what it is to serve money, and then Lord willing we'll see Christ himself. So that's our outline this morning. First, what it is to serve money, to serve the things of man, and then we'll look at how Christ offers the gospel. So as we begin to examine this text, we have to see that it's directly connected to what we studied last week. Verse 13 ends, you cannot serve God and money. So here in verse 14, in our passage, we return to a discussion with the Pharisees. Now the previous parable, if you'll recall, was directed at the disciples. It's in the midst of a crowd, and chapter 15 tells us this crowd was filled with tax collectors and sinners, but Jesus takes this moment with the dishonest manager, that parable, to speak directly to his disciples, and that's a discussion of how we ought to behave in the kingdom. But the Pharisees obviously overheard this, so Luke adds in an editorial comment, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. So in case you weren't sure where the allegiances of the Pharisees lie, Luke is telling us straight from the beginning. Now the Pharisees thought that perhaps God was operating on a worldly level. They assumed that they were God's servants because they were blessed with financial gain. They thought that their success was evidence of God's favor. But really, by that comment that Luke adds in, that they were lovers of money, Luke is telling us that they exalted money. They worshiped money. Money had become their God. Perhaps it wasn't just money, it was the things that money could buy. Uh, status, the approval of their peers, the approval of people in Israel, and they exalted all these things above serving God. And that is what money buys, isn't it? It buys status, it buys approval. And if this goes unchecked, eventually it puffs you up and makes an idol either out of the money or out of yourself. So I want to take a moment and pause to talk about money. Money in and of itself isn't evil. God is sovereign over our economy. He's sovereign over the finances of our church. He's sovereign over our finances. And in fact, God has, has blessed Redeemer. He's blessed us with the ability to give a great deal to missions, and that is a very, very good thing, and we ought to praise him all the more for that. But when money takes the place of God, that's the problem. When, as Christ tells us in verse 15, that you are those who try to justify yourself 
before men, if that is the use of our money, trying to justify ourselves, then money's taken the place of our Savior. Things that money can buy don't lead to worship of God. And yes, money buys a lot of things that are good. But exalting money to that place doesn't lead to worship. I mean, we're all prone to do this sometimes. Who of us has never thought, if I just made more money, if I just had a nicer place to live, and perhaps it's not something that money can buy, perhaps it's if I just make a good enough grade, if I just do a little bit more, if I just try a little bit harder, my life will be complete. Everything will be fine. Maybe we don't go so far as to think that we will be justified because of these things, but the temptation's there. And this is a dangerous thing, and Christ tells us how dangerous it is because he goes on to say that the things that man exalts, and we understand in the context that he's talking about the things of money, the things that man exalts are an abomination to God. Now, abomination is a word that we rarely use today. Uh, I don't ever really recall hearing it outside of scripture. Perhaps the only time I do remember hearing it is uh, you're old enough, you might have woken up and watched Bugs Bunny on Saturday morning, and there was a repeating character on there called the Abominable Snowman. That's the only time that I can think I've heard the word outside of scripture. So it's not something that we use very often, uh, and it's not something that shows up very much in the New Testament either. It's used a few times in Revelation, but that's talking about abominations to come. It's in the future, uh, so there's not a lot of detail there. It's also used once in Matthew. It's used once in Mark as well. They're parallel passages, but Jesus is quoting uh, the book of Daniel, which is also about a future prophecy. And so this use of abomination, it's the only time that Jesus says something is an abomination. And so we ought to take special attention uh, attention to, to understand what he means. So an abomination being uh, something that causes hatred, something that causes loathing, or it's detestable in some way. That's how the word is used. But as we see abomination in the Old Testament, how it's used, I think that can be a helpful background for us to understand how and why Jesus is using this word here. Abomination, that word tends to show up in two different situations. First, it shows up with idolatry. If people are being idolatrous, if they are worshiping a specific false god, or if there's a general kind of uh, culture of idolatry, those things are often called an abomination. Now, the other place we see it is with specific sins. If you read the book of Leviticus, the word abomination shows up all over the place as uh, the law is being uh, expounded on. And certain sins are called abominations. And what you see with those is that the punishment for those sins called abominations, uh, more often than not, not every time, but more often than not, those sins are punished by exile or death. Some way you're, you're cut off, maybe you're made unclean, and so you're cut off from the community until you can go and repent and, and cleanse yourself and present yourself back to the priest, or the Lord will put you to death for it. So in, in these sins, certainly idolatry is included. These sins God hates, and he points them out as different. 
So when Jesus calls the exalting of the things of man an abomination, this is no light thing. There is a, a way that God has arranged the world, a way that he has, he has ordered his creation, and he is to be exalted above all. That is the right pecking order, if you will. And to do otherwise is an abomination. So Jesus tells us here that God knows your hearts, that the Pharisees here are not following God. These Pharisees are lifting up abominations, exalting them over and above the place of God. We ought to take a warning from the Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, set your heart on God and serve him. Now, so often as he does, Christ does not point out this abomination and leave. This condemnation that he gives of this, he doesn't just point this out and say, okay, see you later. What Christ does now is he turns and he offers the gospel. And so how does he do this? Well, Christ begins with scripture. He begins pointing out the heritage of the Jewish people with the Old Testament. He says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. And you all know this, that when Christ is, is pointing out the law and the prophets, the scriptures of, of Moses and, and the prophets and the other writings, that he's talking about what, what we call the Old Testament. He's talking about the scriptures of, of Moses uh, and the prophets that have been given up through John the Baptist. So Christ is indicating here that John's message is part of that old kind of testament. And what does John do? Well, he points to the one who is coming after me, one of whom John is not worthy to untie his sandals. John points to Christ the same way that the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus puts John together with the prophets of the Old Testament, and all of it points to Christ. And in these few uh, short verses, Christ is standing there before the before the Pharisees, before his disciples, before this crowd, offering himself as the good news of Scripture. Now, from the law, the prophets that, that Christ here points out, we understand that obedience was required to be right with God, keeping the fullness of the law, offering the right sacrifices, making sure to complete every little stipulation of the covenant that God made with Moses. That's how you get right with God. That's what the Jewish people believed. So the only way that our hearts could be turned right to God was our obedience. And that's scary because none of us can do that. None of the Israelites could do that. They could not be, we could not be perfectly obedient. But Christ is saying, after John, since John, there's a new teacher a new teaching, a new way that we ought to understand the scriptures, and it all points to Christ. So since then, he says in verse 16, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Now this begs the question, what is the good news of the kingdom of God? It's Christ. That's the good news. It's the Son of God come to earth. It's his message, repent and believe believe what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God knows our hearts. He knows that we're sinners and he knows that the affections of our hearts turn us from him. He knows that we're tempted to serve another master. 
And he knows that money and the things that money can buy is one of the biggest temptations that we can face. So what's the solution? Good news. <laughs> it's Christ. <laughs> Christ who was tempted to sin in every way and yet never did. Christ who kept the whole law perfectly when we could not. And we ought to cry out, hallelujah at this. Hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So as we come to the season of, of Advent, I found myself listening uh, yesterday, actually, to Handel's Messiah. You come to the hallelujah chorus. Uh, and I have to admit that Meredith wanted to listen to Christmas music much sooner than I did. Uh, it was Thanksgiving morning. We were in the kitchen uh, baking, getting ready for uh, our, the meal later that afternoon. And she said, hey, can I, can I put on a Charlie Brown Christmas? And I said, nope. I love mashed potatoes. Give me today. We can start tomorrow. Uh, so Friday night, uh, she was decorating. She put on some Christmas music. And yesterday, as I was in the office uh, finishing up a few things, I put on Handel's Messiah. And the words of the Hallelujah Chorus struck me. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah. So I, I said I confess because I wasn't ready to listen to that music. But that ought to be the anthem of our hearts all the time. Because that is the good news. That it is Christ who has come, who did live that perfect life that we could not. And what's even better, that this good news is not just for that crowd. It's not just for the disciples of that day he was also preaching to the Pharisees. We don't know if any of them came to faith, but he is certainly evangelizing them here. Those same people who ridiculed him, those same people who would, in just a few short weeks, put him to death, those same people who tested him at every turn, questioned every teaching he brought forth, questioned every miracle he performed, Christ is preaching to them here as well. And he's preaching to us too. He's sharing his gospel, sharing his good news, sharing himself with us, with you. Why? Because he's enough. His work on earth, his perfect life, his forgiveness for sinners, his atonement, it's sufficient. It's enough. This is not a message that Christ is giving us here in this passage of Christ plus something else. And the gospel is that, that we're sinners in need of a savior. God sent Christ to earth to live the life that we couldn't, to take our place on the cross, and that he rose again. That's the gospel. So it's not Christ plus you have to do all these things and obey everything. No, we ought to be obedient. Because Christ loves us, and so we ought to love him and be obedient. So please don't hear that, but the gospel, Jesus plus something else, is not the gospel. This message is that Christ is sufficient to meet our needs, and it doesn't mean that we won't have struggles. It doesn't mean that we're promised a life of, of wealth and comfort, but our ultimate need is for reconciliation to God. And it's to have God as the master of our lives. 
And so that is what he's offered us here in the gospel. Now, as we move along uh, in our text, we come to a phrase, really uh, a word, that is incredibly difficult. As we come to this section, uh, the text reads, and everyone forces his way into it. I want to say this from the get-go as we begin, that uh, no one knows how to translate this. Uh, I read a bunch of commentaries, I looked up a bunch of things, and uh, this word force, uh, it's, it rarely shows up in the Bible, it rarely shows up in uh, other Greek literature. Uh, in fact, it's only, it only shows up twice in the New Testament. It shows up in the, the section that we're reading, it shows up in a parallel account in Matthew. So he talks about John, and in that Matthew passage, he talks about him being uh, the next Elijah, so if you have ears to hear it. And so this idea of, of violence kind of fits with Elijah, because Elijah was threatened with violence. He fled uh, back to seek God uh, because his life was threatened, and so violence makes a little bit more sense here. So this use of force makes sense. But another way that this word can be used is to press urgently. Uh, think of Black Friday, uh, maybe not in years when there's a pandemic, um, but you, you know the stories that you've seen videos of or you've read news accounts of where people line up, they camp out, and then uh, they, they press on that glass. And as soon as those doors start to part open, they, they press themselves in. That's another uh, use of the word here, which I think fits uh, our understanding a little bit better. Elijah's not mentioned this context of force perhaps isn't here, but this pressing in, pressing urgently. And, and many people had seen Christ. They'd seen his ministry, they'd heard his teaching, they'd seen his miracles, him casting out demons, him preaching the good news of the kingdom, and everyone is pressing their way into it. How many people, how many times do we read of people lining up to get to Christ, to have a chance just to touch his garment, to have a family member healed, or even just to hear him speak. I think that's the sense here. People are pressing in urgently around Christ to get in to the kingdom, but the Pharisees are not. They're standing back away from the crowds, judging silently, questioning everything that he does. And so he's pointing out, this is something that you need, and people know it. Brothers and sisters, if you do not know the Lord, press urgently. Press urgently in. You know, who knows? Perhaps the Pharisees have heard his parables enough. They've heard... Uh, his teaching, and they just have decided that they're rejecting it, so they're just going to cause a little bit of chaos. You know, uh, Christ has already taught us that God knows our hearts. He knows their hearts. Uh, and perhaps you've, you've been in a church or you've grown up in, in other churches where uh, the same teaching shows up that we're, we're not supposed to really worry about obedience. We're not supposed to worry about the scriptures. We're not supposed to worry about how uh, the Old Testament speaks to us still today. We have freedom in Christ, and that's true. We absolutely do, and we are living with, with grace, but we cannot forgo the scriptures. 
And in fact, uh, that teaching can uh, give us a lot of uh, liberties that aren't scriptural. This teaching that, that we're under grace and not under the law. And the teaching is addressed specifically in many places in scripture. And here is, is one. So in our final uh, verse, Christ tells us that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So what's he doing here? He's affirming the authority of the scriptures. He's affirming the word of God. And he's saying, my teaching, the things that I'm saying now, this gospel that I'm presenting to you, that perhaps you're rejecting because it seems to, to go against our Jewish heritage, it seems to, to be new, it's not. It falls in line with the rest of scripture, the same way that John and all of the prophets and teachers before, all of it points to me and my teaching falls in line with this because Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. He lived every part of the law perfectly. No sinful thought or action was ever held by Jesus. So check the scriptures. Check the word of God because it doesn't fail. It stands forever. As Isaiah tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So this gospel, the, the scriptures stand forever as a witness to what sin is and what Christ has done. Christ's innocence of any sin. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ's work in the world, in our lives, this gospel that he is offering us, as it's testified to by the scriptures, stand forever. Brothers and sisters, you cannot serve two masters. Serve Christ as he offers himself here, as he offers himself in the word of God. Check the scriptures because it testifies to Christ and to his saving work in our lives. And if you think your heart might be in the wrong place, and you think your sin too great, well, look to Christ. Look to Christ as he offers himself here, because he is sufficient, and he is calling you for good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good news of Christ we thank you that you know our hearts. May you move us, move our hearts to consider who we're serving. Draw us closer to yourself. Teach us to search the scriptures that we might know Christ more and know his gospel more. I thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for his good news, his gospel. Thank you for him and his perfect life that he died on the cross innocently that his righteousness might be imputed to us. Father, we praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.